been uh, powerful in, in spreading the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. And you'll find that behind it, in front of it, and all around it is, is uh, a, uh, a leader that God has raised up, a visionary that God has raised up, an anointed person that has been used as a catalyst uh, to, to uh, mobilize the people and energize the people. It seems to be the, the way that God works. Uh, look at the scriptural narrative, and you find that it's, it's structured around God using certain individuals uh, to confront people and to mobilize people. You've got Moses, you've got Joshua, you've got Deborah, you've got Peter, you've got Paul. Take away these sorts of leaders, and uh, uh, the biblical narrative, the, the, the biblical history is not at all what it in fact is. And so it has been throughout history. The Lutheran Reformation would be, wouldn't have occurred without Luther. And the Methodist Reformation wouldn't have occurred without the Wesleys. And the great revivals of the 17th century, the First Great Awakening, wouldn't have happened without God using a Jonathan Edwards and a George Whitfield. And uh, the Second Great Awakening in the 19th century wouldn't have happened without a Charles Phil, uh, Finney or a Billy Sunday or a D.L. Moody. God uses individuals to energize, to mobilize, to give vision to the people of God, to do, uh, to do great things for God. Now the question you've got to ask then is this, who are or where are the visionary leaders of today? And we have them for sure, but I submit to you we don't have enough of them. And that in part explains perhaps why the church isn't more powerful, especially in the West, than it ought to be. George Barna, who knows more about spiritual matters than, than, uh, or church matters anyways than any other person on the planet, said this recently in, a, in, a, in an article. He said, the number one obstacle problem, crisis of the church in the West is a lack of biblical spiritual visionary leadership. Because without a vision, the people perish, the Bible says. And one of the reasons for this is, is uh, because of a mindset and understanding that uh, people have about the church. And this is the tenth myth that I want to speak of in this series on myths about the church. The tenth and final myth. And the problem is, he says, that the, the understanding in the West is that the church, at least to a large degree, the understanding is that the church is to be a democracy. A democracy. Where everyone is supposed to have equal say, where everybody is a leader, where uh, it's unfair if a pastor or a uh, overseers or anyone has more say than anybody else. And, and, and so if everything that the church does uh, is supposed to be just done by consensus. Uh, this kind of slogan is, pastors come and go, but the people stay in the church, so the people should be the ones who dictate all that goes on in the church, and the pastors there just to carry out the will of the people. And the result of that, says George Barna and many other people who are looking at, the, at, at, at this matter, is this. See, democracy is good at doing one thing, and that is finding the lowest common denominator among a group of people. And it works well in government, but it causes a lot of problems when you try to do a, have a move of God that way. You never arrive at vision through a vote, do you? You never arrive at radical, sold-out, passionate, counter-cultural, abandoned, uh, visionary kingdom stuff by voting on it. It comes from a vision from God, praise God. And so this has been uh, just disastrous. This mindset has been disastrous and undermining the power and the authority of the church. Now the root of the problem I submit to you is not in the people. The root of the problem is in a false view of leadership that we have adopted. And that's what I want to be speaking on here this morning. I want to read out of Luke chapter 22. 
This is uh, an episode that occurs right after the Lord's Supper. The Lord has just spoken to them about how He wants to, uh, um, how He is going to uh, uh, shed His blood, how He's going to break His, his body will be broken. Uh, in service to them for the redemption of the world. He's come to be spent, to give his life. Now, right after Jesus says this, this is just amazing to me. It's a testimony to how honest the Gospels are, written by the disciples, that they paint themselves in such a realistic, stupid light. Right after the Lord gives this teaching, they begin to argue with one another about who's the greatest in the kingdom. They kind of missed the point, didn't they? So it says this, uh, a dispute arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But Jesus said, and you you really need to feel sorry for Jesus at this point. Uh, It doesn't look good. He said to them, listen to this, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, lord it over others, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. That means those who benefit. So lucky you that you get to be king. You get to lord over other people. You get to have your way at the expense of them having their way. But not so with you, the Lord says. Rather, listen to this, the greatest among you must become the youngest, and the leader like one who serves, a servant. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table, according to the world? But I say to you, but I am among you as one who serves. The Lord of the universe is among you as one who serves. The God of all creation is among you as one who serves. Incredible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, and we'll come to this in a little bit, the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's two kinds of authority that we can speak about. There's, there's, there's a worldly pagan authority and there is kingdom authority. And one of the things that has brought about this, uh, this model of, a, of the church as a democracy is that the church has accepted a pagan kind of authority against which people instinctively revolt. Let me uh, look a little bit at this pagan authority. I want to talk about the structure of this pagan authority. Pagan authority, the world's authority, is always an authority over, a power over others. You are in authority to the extent that you get to have your way at the expense of other people having their way. It really operates this way. First, you have a vision, but the vision is of yourself. The world operates with the principle of self-interest. What's in it for me? What's good for me? So there's a vision for self-interest. This is what every unregenerate uh, spirit works out of. What's in it for me? Now, if you're fortunate, fortunate enough to be born in the right situation or have the right gifting or whatever, you're, you happen to have authority over people. So now you exercise power over others as a way of getting your self-interest met. Power over others. You dominate others. You, it's a coercive kind of top-down authority. There's a self-interest vision. There's power over others. And that means that you are the benefactor. Lucky you. Lucky me. You get to be boss. How nice... Uh, how fortunate for you that you get to get your way at the expense of other people getting their way. Right after the fall, we find this pagan, worldly, uh, even, I'd say, demonic sort of model of authority coming into the world. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, the Lord, the Lord created man and woman to have dominion over the world, right? He, he gave them both that charge in Genesis chapter 1, not to have dominion over one another. They're supposed to have dominion over the animal kingdom and dominion over the earth, but they're not to treat each other like animals and like the earth. They're not to dominate one another. But because of the fall, 
curse was brought in, and so here's what the Lord says to Eve. To the woman he said, your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now some people take this as sort of God's prescription for a good marriage. As a matter of fact, it's God's description of a bad marriage. When he says to the woman, you shall desire him, the word there, it's used in the next chapter of sin. Where it says sin is crouching at the door and it desires you. It means uh, the desire to manipulate, the, the desire to control. So the woman's going to be desiring to control you, but, the Lord says, he shall lord over you. The word lord there, or uh, rule you, is to tyrannize. So what the Lord is saying here is this, this beautiful, this beautiful partnership that I created that would have been a reflection of my own image is now going to be a power struggle where the woman's trying to control the man, but the man ends up controlling the woman because of his, but he's a benefactor. He has a superior strength, usually, and throughout history this has been the case. Because of sheer might... See, in the world, might is right. And because you can rule, you do rule. And so this beautiful thing called marriage turns into this warfare. It's been the same thing in governments throughout all of history. Most governments have been tyrannical. They rule people. They control people. And the ones who benefit are those who are on top. And see, there's something in the human spirit. We are created to be persons who have some degree of say-so. And when we are squished by another, there's part of us that wants to revolt. And part of what we're seeing in the world today is, is uh, in, in families, is a revolt against the tyrannical authority of males. And some people could say, oh, it's, women have gotten a Jezebel spirit. Well, don't be so simple here. Maybe the problem is not so much in the revolt, although that's not good, but in what they're revolting against, this, this Genesis 3.16 model of, of authority. We've seen the same thing happen with, with governments in the last 400 years in particular. We've had the British Revolution. We've had the French Revolution. We've had the American Revolution uh, where people have revolted against the tyranny of kings, saying we want to govern ourselves. We want to have some say-so. We want to have a vote. And see, while this is great in, ter in political terms, it's, it's a marvelous thing. I really believe the Federalist Papers when it says that government governs best which governs least. Somebody give me an amen on that one. As a wonderful thing politically, I'm happy for the revolutions that happened politically. But what is good politically is, I submit to you, disastrous in terms of the church. When you use a model of the government for the church and, and, and uh, you set up checks and balances that work against each other as you do in a democratic government, when you try to model the church after a democratic government, things really fall apart because the church is not a government first and foremost. It's an army. Amen? And how do you, we've got to realize that we're at war. There's a war going on. And how do you run an army by taking a consensus all the time? How, how, how do you run an army without a captain? What would it have been like for Moses and the children of Israel? Do you think they ever would have gotten out of the desert if uh, Moses had to take an opinion poll every time he made a decision? Uh, if there wasn't somebody to rally them and motivate them and, and lead the charge, what would Joshua have been like if, uh, if uh, before they entered the land of Canaan he had to take a census on what people felt about this whole thing? It just, it just would have fallen apart. You can't run an army the way that you run a, a, a government. What would have happened on the day of Pentecost if Peter, this makes me shudder, if Peter would have had to submit his sermon to a committee and, 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 and sort of get a consensus approval here of, of, of what exactly he's, he's going to preach. He never would have got around to preaching, and it never would have had the power that it in fact had. Now, does that mean... Does that mean, then, that, uh, we, that the church should have a tyrannical form of government? 
if it's not a democracy, well, then, then it must be that one person gets to have their way over others. And see, th- those are the two options that a lot of us work with. And since we, since we don't want the tyranny because that's abusive, we go to this democratic model. But I submit to you there is a third way, and it is God's way. It is God's view of authority. It is what I might call kingdom authority. Kingdom authority is not power over another. It's power under another. Power under another. You don't uh, move things forward by crushing people under you. You move things forward by holding up people uh, over you. Like if they put your uh, Charles Atlas, if you will, holding up the world. You, you affirm them. You embrace them. It kind of goes like this. The, the leader is one who gets God's vision. That's what distinguishes a leader. You, you, you are used by God to get a vision of what God wants to do in the world. It's not about your self-interest like, like it is in the world. It's not about what will benefit you. It's, it's, it's the vision of God. Uh, what does God want to have happen in a particular situation? Then comes taking responsibility. A leader is one who takes responsibility to see the vision come to pass. You have ownership on this whole thing. Uh, You don't pass the buck. You are going to be used by God to bring this thing to pass. Then comes thirdly, not power over, but power under someone. You begin to serve. You begin to sacrifice. You begin to love. You begin to encourage. You begin to equip. And in doing that, you bring other people in on the vision. You see, where, where God's authority is ruling, it's not about a person, it's about a vision. And you give people buy-in on the vision. They begin to own it. They begin to internalize it. And when you have that happening, it's not just the leader who's the benefactor, but everybody is the benefactor because they're all participating in the vision and they're all getting blessed by the vision. A radically different model of authority, radically different from the world. I want to look at two examples from the Bible of, of how, this, uh, how this gets played out, play, played out. God models this form of leadership. God has a vision for what he wants the world to be. He takes responsibility for the entire world. But he doesn't do it by, by coercing people, by making them in the robots. Uh, he, he, he gives people say-so. He gives them free will. He gives them power to impact him and to uh, affect the, the future. And he moves in their midst, not in a coercive way, but in a persuasive way, to bring them on board with, with a vision. And the result is that everybody's a benefactor insofar as they go along with the program. God gets the people that he wants, and the people get the God that they need. So let's look at two examples of this. In Hosea. Hosea was a, a man uh, that was called by God. He was a prophet, and the Lord told him, the Lord does outrageous things sometimes, folks. The Lord said, I want you to go out and marry a prostitute. So uh, Hosea obeyed and went out and married a prostitute. It's in the book of Hosea. Read it. It's a beautiful book. And uh, this prostitute, as uh, could have been predicted, uh, went back after a while of being married to him and having a couple of children, went back into prostitution. So the Lord said to Hosea, okay, Hosea, I want you to walk the red light district of Israel. That's kind of a modern paraphrase. And I want you to go knocking on the doors and, uh, of, of all the people who get involved in this prostitution and ask them and plead for them if you could have your wife back and go out calling in the streets for your wife. Because I want to use you as a walking parable of what my heart is like. My heart, Israel, he says, is being an adulterer. Israel's chasing after false gods. But I'm in love with Israel and I want her back. And so I want them to look at you and they'll see my heart that I'm calling out to them. Will you come back to me? Will you return to me? I want to have this love relationship with you. And then the Lord gives this vision. Look at this. This is, this is what he's working for. Hosea chapter 2. On that day, says the Lord. 
you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. That's a false god. In other words, no longer are you going to be an adulterer. I will make for you a covenant, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now, just look at this sort of kingdom leadership that the Lord exemplifies here. This is leadership in the body of Christ. The Lord has a vision. The, Lord, the, the, the vision that he's working for is that he wants Israel to be his bride. He wants a bride. The Lord takes responsibility for it. He says, I will make a covenant with you. I will lead you uh, to, to, to in, into a place of safety. I will woo you. I'm going to win your heart, he's saying. He takes responsibility for the whole thing. He's not guilty when they don't, but, he, but ahead of time he takes responsibility for bringing about. This brings about a shared vision. Or, or, or uh, the Lord shows power under here. He, does, he doesn't just decide to flex his mighty bicep, his cosmic omnipotent uh, you know, muscles, and say, I, you know, I will coerce you, I will determine you, I'll turn you into robots so that you have to follow me. Rather, the Lord here shows his heart. He suffers. He, he pursues them. He pleads with them. He enters into almost a humiliating relationship with Hosea knocking on the doors. Uh, exemplified in Hosea knocking on the door saying, can I have my wife back? The Lord comes under them because he, what he wants to do is to bring them, them on board with the shared vision. You shall know, he says, that I am the Lord. You're going to see this on the inside. I'm going to win you. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue you to the point where you see that, that uh, I'm a faithful God and you'll be a faithful wife. His hope is that they'll come around to really embrace him as the Lord God in a beautiful, intimate, passionate husband-wife relationship. And the result of that is that everybody will be a benefactor. You will be blessed. You'll have safety. You'll have righteousness. Uh, you'll, you'll, we'll share this love together. God gets the people that he's striving for, and the people get the God that they've always longed for, whether they knew it or not. It's God's model of leadership. It's not power over. It's power under. You see this all over the place in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Lord has a vision for a bride. That's always been his vision for the world. He's striving for a bride. I want a people for my, uh, that I can call my own who will reign with me on the earth. So he's striving for that. He takes responsibility for the entire world. He's not guilty of the sins of the world, but he takes responsibility for it. That's what a leader does. And so he pays the price for the sin of the world on the cross. He suffers because of our wrongdoing. This is the Lord taking responsibility for the world. And in doing this, he shows a beautiful, magnificent power under, holding people up. He, he uh, allows himself, the omnipotent God of the universe, is crucified on the cross of Calvary. This is, this is kingdom power. This is kingdom power. He shows us his heart, uh, the incarnation of the sort of heart that we saw in Hosea. I love you this much. I'm willing to go this far, this extreme, and suffer this pain on your behalf. And he's doing it to win us over. Not flexing an arm, making us turn towards him, but, but rather allowing us to crucify him so we'll see his heart as he's wooing his people. 
And in doing this, his goal is to have us have a shared vision, a shared vision of, of who God is, a shared vision of who we can be in Jesus Christ, and a shared vision of how he wants to use us for the world. And when we do that, all of us are benefactors. We're all captured by the vision. We all abide into this vision. We all grow in the vision. And then God uses us to reach the, the entire world. This is God's authority. This is God's leadership. This is God's omnipotence. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. That the cross is foolishness. If you've got a, a uh, Caesar view of power, a king view of power, the world's view of power, this is foolishness. This is ludicrous. And so the cross, the message that God dies on the cross for our sins, is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who reject it. But, Paul says, for all of us who are being saved... It is the power of God. This is the power of God. Precisely when you couldn't conceive of a weaker God getting crucified on the cross, that, Paul says, is the power of God. To everyone who looks at it, to everyone who says yes to it, to everyone who yields to the moving of the Holy Spirit in their heart, this is the power of God. How is it the power of God? How is, how is the Lord leading by, by being crucified? Well, it's like this. When I look at the cross, when I look at the cross and I see the beauty of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, I see the beauty, the unfathomable, uh, outrageous beauty of a God who would die for me while I was yet a sinner. Uh, when I see that He is willing to go to this extent for me, when I understand that though I had made myself unworthy, He thought I was worth it. When I see that, you know, what, you know what? There's a part in my heart that says, you know, I'll follow you anywhere. You have won me. You have won me. You have just bulldozed over every obstacle in my heart because I can't conceive of a God that's more beautiful and more lovely than this God who loved me enough to die on the cross of Calvary. I'll follow you anywhere. You see, I surrender. I yield. It's not out of a... It's not out of a... I, in, in, in response to a bicep, the, the cosmic Arnold Schwarzenegger God saying, do this or else. It's rather in response to the beauty and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ who lays down his life for us, praise God. You know, when I was first a, a Christian, I've shared this before in the congregation, uh, I had my model of authority. I always had problems with authority. I always was running into authorities. The authorities never liked me. And, and so when I got saved, I, I thought that the Lord was just like this. He was always mad at me. He was, he was the cosmic Caesar. He had power over and there's a legitimate sense in which God does have power over, but he expresses it by having power under. And there were the sin in my life, major strongholds of, of pornography and other things, uh, just couldn't be broken with this, with this power over model of God, always mad, always ready to throw a thunderbolt in, in my way. But see, when I caught a revelation of who the true God was, uh, that, God, that God died for me on the cross, and that, that, uh, that he, he paid the price for my sin, when I saw the outrageous beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, that had a power over me that the bicep never could. You know, and what the fear of hell couldn't do, the, the love of God and the cross of Jesus Christ did, breaking the chain of sin in my life, because for the first time in my life, I wanted to follow Him. I had buy-in to the vision. I saw who God was. I saw who I could be. I saw how He could use me. And it changed everything. That is the glory of God. That is, is genuine leadership. It doesn't produce revolt in the spirit of a person, because you're not being squished. God doesn't squish us. He wins us. Praise God. 
I'm not less of a person when I follow God. See, people, if they have a pagan model of authority, they think that we're just demeaning ourselves when we worship God. They think it's demeaning, it's dehumanizing, it's, it's debilitating to submit to the authority of God. But what they don't understand is that God's authority is not a cosmic Caesar kind of authority. I'm not less of a person when I, when I worship God. I'm, I'm only now a full person. I, I'm more, I'm, I'm better than I otherwise would be. I'm more of an individual when I serve God and I love God and I follow God and I serve God uh, and, and follow His ways. He doesn't squish us. He wins us. One of the things I just do not get, I just do not get, is, is uh, how, how some still uh, say that God is glorious only to the degree that He controls things. God is glorious when He controls. And then they, they, they think that if, if uh, you uh, say that there's anything in the world that happens that's not His will, you're, you're robbing Him of glory. God's less glorious for thinking that He didn't uh, ordain the Holocaust than if He did ordain the Holocaust. And, and uh, so a book was written recently, for example, that's called God's Lesser Glory. And it was written largely against me, uh, where, where the, the, the person is saying that I'm, I'm taking away the glory of God because I think that God has empowered us to make decisions that are even against His will. And He doesn't always get His way. And He tries to uh, move us forward by, by winning our hearts rather than just determining what's going to happen. And I don't get how, what is glorious about controlling everything. You know, I, I can wiggle my hand like this. You know, I, I have a, I, I'm totally sovereign over my hand. But no one's really impressed with that, are you? Because, of course, I can wiggle my hand. It's my hand. That's, there's nothing glorious about exercising an innate power to control that you have. So also, God could do this or this or anything He wants with creation. It's His creation. He's the omnipotent God. He can do anything He wants. But what's glorious about that? What is glorious, I think, is that God, though He could do that, He could create everything so it absolutely necessarily has to go according to His will. This God is a confident God. He's so confident, He creates a world where there are genuine persons who have got free will and can make decisions on their own because the relationship He wants is with a husband and a wife. And so He gives us the choice to follow Him or not. And rather than just flexing His bicep and getting His way, what He does is He dies for us, He woos us, He pursues us, He loves us, and He brings us on board, praise God, by winning our hearts. That is glorious. That to me is glorious. You couldn't get a more beautiful God. You couldn't get a more wonderful God. That is the glory of God. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, For God has shown in our hearts the light of the gospel, whereby we see the glory of God. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory of God? Look at the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory of God? Look at the cross of Calvary. That is the glory of God. You want to see the power of God, the omnipotence of God? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the power of God. When, when God allows himself to be crucified by sinners. You want to see the, the beauty of God? You want to see the deity of God? You want to see the sovereignty of God? Look to the person of Jesus Christ. Praise God. That's why Jesus says, uh, if you see me, you see the Father. This is, this is what God is like. That is the glory of God. And that is leadership in the kingdom. Leadership in the kingdom. You have a vision. You take responsibility. You serve. You, you build up. You, you, you bring about a shared vision. And everybody then is a benefactor. Jesus, it says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the suffering, endured the suffering of the cross. He's the benefactor because he gets a bride. The bride's a benefactor because we get our Savior. What a beautiful relationship that is. When you get this model of authority, it changes everything. We always imitate, eventually, more or less, the God that we worship. 
We always live it out. And so if you have got a coercive model of God, Leaders who have a coercive model of God, a, a, a tyrannical model of God, a Caesar model of God. Now, I, if I may say so, the, the God that, that, that uses pagan authority, lording it over. If, if that's your view of God, you'll tend to imitate that. And this is why you get pastors who uh, are just into control. They've got to control everything. Uh, th- there has to be absolute uniformity in what everybody thinks. And if, if there's anyone in, in their church or anyone who, in their fellowship who has a little different perspective on things, you need to control it. You need to get them out because it's, you know, they're, they're, they're following their picture of God. It's absolute control. But see, if you have a model of God that's rooted in the sacrifice on the cross of, of, of Jesus Christ, it leads to a very different kind of authority. Very different kind of authority. You take responsibility, you get a vision for what God wants, you take responsibility for it, you serve, you do what Jesus Christ did in order to bring about a shared vision. And the result of that is that everybody is a benefactor. It follows in the church and it follows in the family. Look at the family, for example. There's a big debate going on, it's been going on for quite some time, about whether it's always the husband that's the head of the household. You know, is the husband the head of the household? We're discussing this in, in our, uh, our pastoral staff. And it's a, it's a fine debate. Some say that, that it was just in the first century that men were always supposed to be in charge. Other people think, well, no, God, that's God's plan uh, throughout history. But here's the thing that concerns me. So often, in fact, usually when we discuss the question of is the man the head of the household, uh, the model of headship that we have is the pagan one. It's the Caesar one, the, the, the Caesar's Lord uh, kind of a, a model. It's power over. We see, if you have a model of uh, kingdom authority, a kingdom headship, I submit to you that the question almost becomes moot, uh, un- unimportant. I don't know a lot of wives that would disagree or would have problems with the husband initiating Christ-like action towards the wife. Here's what Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at this. Totally definition, uh, different definition and understanding of authority. Husbands and wives, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. This in the first century, folks is incredible because men had all the power in the first century paul says submit to one another in fact paul in a dozen places in the new testament says that this is how we're to relate to one another in general christians uh submit to one another defer to one another esteem one another above uh, above yourself this is just acting christ-like to one another paul just says christians who are in a marriage be christian and what happens when you do this, see, what he's saying here is this. Instead of this Genesis 3.16 power over struggle kind of thing, where everyone's trying to get the upper hand, who gets to have their way, now you've got a power under sort of thing going on. Submit to one another, defer to one another. It's not a matter of who gets to be the benefactor, who gets to have their way, who gets to be the boss, who gets to have the tie-breaking vote. No, it's a matter of deferring to one another. And then Paul says this. Husbands, you're the ones who have the power. You love your wives just as Christ, look at this, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy. When she deserved it least, you laid down your life for her. That's leadership. That's kingdom authority. You know what? However you resolve this issue, uh, whether a husband should always be the head or not, see, it, it really becomes unimportant when you understand the biblical concept of headship. It's not the kind of thing you fight for. If anything, in the flesh, you want to give it away. 
Uh, he's like, you know what? I, this is, I don't know a lot of wives that would really have trouble if uh, in, a, in a troubled marriage the husband came up and said, honey, you know what? I've been, I, 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 I have been interceding with God uh, for our marriage, and, and God's given me a vision of just what our marriage could be. Oh, yeah, God's given me a picture uh, that we're to work for, and it is a beautiful one where we are just in love with one another and, and, and enjoying one another. And you know what, honey? I'm going to take responsibility to make this happen. I'm going to initiate it. I'm going to work towards this, and I'm going to lay down my life for you. I don't know a lot of wives that would say, no way, that's my, that, that's, I, I get to do that. You know, I'll lay down my life for you. I, I, I'm going to hold you up. I'm going to encourage you. And even when you don't deserve it, even when, when uh, you're having the bad days, even when you're doing the nasties on me, you know, even, uh, even in all of that, I'm still going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to be, I'm going to be to you what Christ was to the church, and I'm going to hold you up. And, and I'm going to do that so, we, so you have buy-in on the vision, a shared vision, so you also can see how beautiful this relationship can be. And when that happens, we're both going to be benefactors. We're both going to benefit from this. Not a whole lot of wives would object to that, would they? Can I get an amen from a wife around here? You see, it renders the whole, the whole issue is, is, uh, becomes inconsequential because what most uh, uh, revolt against is the tyrannical view of headship. It's like, I don't want to, no one wants to be squished. But if you have a servant model of leadership, it's very different. And so it is in the church. So it is in the church. A leader is one that has, uh, in the domain of authority that God has given them, a vision for what God wants to do. On the board and with senior pastor, it's a vision for the church as a whole. And then the pastors and the leaders under them have a vision for the domain that God has given to them. And a, and a leader is one who takes responsibility for this. Okay, I, it, is, it is on my shoulders to make this happen as I work with God, to carry out this vision. And then you bring people on board. You equip them. You come under them. You serve them. You help them realize their gifts. They, they're not just there to carry out your wishes. You're there to uh, ha- bring them into buy-in on the vision. That's why the, the, the Bible says in Ephesians 4 that the, pastor, the job of pastors and, and apostles and teachers and evangelists is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip them, to serve them, to get them to realize their full potential in Jesus Christ, to the carrying out of the vision. And when that happens, there's shared vision, and when that happens, everybody is a benefactor. Because it's not about the person, it's about the vision, being gripped by the vision. And then God uses us the way he wants to use us. When you have that kind of a leadership, there's not the tendency to revolt. Like, I've got to get my way. If people resist this kind of leadership, it's either because they don't understand what's going on or they don't have buy into the vision. If you don't have buy into the vision, that's fine, but you need to find a place that has a vision that you can have buy into. Because if you're a believer, you need to be carrying out the vision that God wants to have happen in a particular location for a particular people for a particular place. Let me end this way. There is. Um, I, I, I just really believe that, I know, that the Lord, I, the Lord has given us a vision for what he wants to do in St. Paul and in Maplewood and in Woodbury and in, in the whole surrounding area and to the world as the Lord leads. Remarkable, incredible stuff. But it's not going to be carried out by trying to coerce people, by trying to manipulate people, cajole people, shame people. That's what happens when you have a coercive model of leadership, but that's not kingdom leadership. It happens when the leaders get the vision, take responsibility, and serve and love and demonstrate the character of God as they bring uh, others on board. Do we do that perfectly here at Woodland Hills Church? No, we don't. Are we striving for that? Yes, we are. That's the model of, of authority. I want to end this way. As a 
leader, as, as, as one who is called to be a leader in the body of Christ, I know that there are probably a number of people here who have been squished, who have been in churches where uh, maybe it was even abusive, where there's tyrannical control over you. I'm sometimes amazed, I'm shocked at the, the uh, tactics that are sometimes used by pastors to get their way. And maybe you've been wounded, and maybe right now there's even a buzzer in your spirit about all of this. And I want to, as a representative of the church at large, ask for your forgiveness. And as a pastor, I want to encourage you to let it go and to forgive. Because until you do that, there'll always be a tinge of suspicion in your heart. You'll never be able to trust. You'll never have buy-in to a vision. And therefore, you'll never be used by God the way God wants to use you. And you'll never be a benefactor of being a part of a vision the way God wants to benefit you. Let it go. I ask for your forgiveness. Let it go and give buy-in to the vision. And then I want to ask this question as I ask every believer to close their eyes. I never like to end a service without, or rarely like to end a service without giving anybody who has never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ a chance to do that. Everything I just said about Jesus applies to you, you, here this morning. And the Lord says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. He wants to be your Lord, and He proves it by dying for you. And all you have to do is say yes to it. Is there anybody here who has never really done that, where you said yes to Jesus Christ? And if there is, would you just raise your hand, and I want to pray for you. Raise your hand very quickly, and I'm not going to call you out here up front, but I, I want us all to pray with you, to usher you into the kingdom. Anybody here at all, just raise your hand. Believe in your heart. Let him win your heart. Let him bring you over. Just raise your hand very quickly. Anybody here at all? And I'm just going to trust that everybody here is a kingdom person. I, I hope that is the case. And I want to end with this prayer. Would the prayer team come forward as I pray? pray. Father, your love and your authority and your leadership is so beautiful, Lord. It is glorious. It is glorious. And I pray, Lord God, that every one of us, Lord, could, could see that, could be won over by that, Lord God, and would surrender our lives to you in response to that. Lord, I pray that the vision that you have given the people of Woodland Hills Church would come to fruition, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that you'd put in my heart and in all the leaders' heart a power under, not power over, model of authority, Lord God, to bring people on board with the vision that you've given to us. Lord, that, that, it, that it may be accomplished in, on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. As we go out of this place, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that your peace and your power and your love would be transforming us from the inside out to accomplish all that you will and please in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Praise God. If you have any need whatsoever that you would like to have prayed for, we have a prayer team up here, and they would be happy to spend some time praying with you, interceding with you. Tonight we have the prayer and praise service uh, at uh, 6 o'clock. And uh, God bless you. Go forth in the power and the love of Jesus Christ. We love you.